Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of fellowship. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That as we put all these things together, Lord God, you do amazing things in us. And as we make ourselves available, as we turn our ear to you, Lord, you speak to us. And so we pray as we make ourselves available now and anticipate what you would have to say for us, uh, to us, that you would speak to us through your word and encourage us, exhort us, and uh, help us to continue to grow in Christ. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's text is really a, a, a changing of the guard, so to speak. It's, it's, it shifts focus from Jacob's life to Joseph's life. And for those of you who've been with us through Genesis, you know about the, the tablet theory that we've talked about. According to the tablet theory, each patriarch has actually written their accounts down, their eyewitness accounts. And so if that tablet theory is true, chapters 36 and 37 would be the shifting of authorship from Jacob to the details of Joseph's life. But Jacob, he, he wraps up his account, if indeed he's the eyewitness author, which I think he is, and he wraps it up with Esau's descendants, and he also includes the descendants of Seir, of the, of the Horite people. And um, somewhere along the way, he meets with Esau, probably around the time that they had to bury Isaac, and he re- obtains the descendants of Esau. And then perhaps Moses, who put this all together, uh, added to the, the history of Esau's descendants. Okay, so that's what you have there in chapter 36, and I will not put you through the misery of, of hearing me suffer through all the names, because uh, I'll, I'll have a difficult time pronouncing them, and we don't need to do that. So I'll just say for homework, I want you to read chapter 36, because they're there. God ordained this chapter to be here. These are important people. And of course, I think it's always worth reminding ourselves of the importance of the fact that this book isn't a book of fairy tales and stories that starts once upon a time. Like, this is a true history book full of real people and real lives, And also just to comment on chapter 36, that these are people that didn't necessarily walk with God, but God continued to bless them and allow them to multiply as well, because he has plans for everyone who's ever been conceived. Just a few things to note, though, regarding the Edomites that you'll see there in chapter 36 and the Horites in chapter 36, is that some scholars believe as Esau, verses 6 through 8, he went up, he didn't dwell in Hebron with Jacob, he actually went up to Mount Seir and dwelt in the, in the area of Seir and the Horites. And these, peop- these Horite people are also known as cave dwellers. In fact, some people say the name Horite comes from the derivative of a word that means to dwell in caves or dwell in rocks. So these people are, are renowned or were renowned for being able to build homes out of, out of caves, out of rocks. And I don't know if you know this, but Mount Seir, that is the same area of the famous rock city, Petra. Uh, they built that city on rock and roll. They did, I think. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, bad joke. And uh, Petra, and then also um, there's another place where there's a beautiful red stone palace. This place also became known as the country of Edom because Esau eventually conquered the, the Horites and took over. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's prophetic. It's very interesting to me that these people would, would create this rock fortress, and scholars believe, most eschatological scholars who study 
the end times and the tribulation believe. This is the location that the Jewish people will be fled away to and rescued and spared and protected during the second half of the tribulation period. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, let the reader understand. So he says, those who are reading what he was saying in Matthew 24 at the time of the tribulation period, let them understand those in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's saying, you, if you're in Judea at the time of the tribulation period and you're reading this and the abomination of desolation happens, get out of there and flee to the mountains. Well, Mount Seir in this area is actually higher elevation than most of the, the nearby mountains in Jerusalem, and it's, yet it's still on foot. It could be a, a trek on foot. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, gives us this picture of a woman that represents Israel. And it says that she, is, she flees to the wilderness to be protected for, the, for three and a half years. And again, the, the mountains uh, where Esau dwelt in Edom, these are pretty desolate mountains. They're not very vegetable. They're not full of vegetation like the surrounding mountains of Jerusalem are and green. So it's a wilderness, it's a mountain, and there's also an allusion to it in Psalm 108 where the psalmist prays, Lord, who will, who will lead us to Edom, to the fortified cities for protection? So this, it's this illusion that they will be one day led into this place of Edom where all this, these rock fortresses are. So pretty interesting. These are some of the reasons that it's believed Israel will flee to Petra in the last days. But what I find amazing about this is as we read these people groups here in 36, or as you do that for homework, that God would actually allow these people to be gifted with the ability to carve homes out of rocks, knowing one day he would use this place to protect his people in the middle of the tribulation period. To me, it just speaks of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over every people group who have ever lived, regardless of where they've lived, regardless of what information they had. God was still sovereign over them. And I, just, I think that's amazing and interesting. So go ahead and check out chapter 36. Um, the last Edomite, the Edomites eventually become uh, just a nuisance from here on and enemies, really, of Israel from here on out. And the final uh, Edomite that, that, uh, that we know about was actually King Herod the Great in history. In fact, he was known as, as an Idumean, which is what the Greeks called the Edomites when they entered the land. And King Herod, of course, was the king that, that had all the babies murdered in, in Bethlehem after, around the time Jesus was born. That was King Herod the Great. And after that, the Idumeans really disappear. And so that judgment is, is met out by God, and they really are wiped out. Um, we don't know any more about them after King Herod. So let's jump into verse uh, 1 of chapter 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations, or Taulada is what that word is, the generations of Jacob, the history of Jacob. So there you have the signature of Jacob, signifying that his account, his written history is over. Now from here on, for the rest of Genesis, I think there's maybe one chapter that's not on the life of Joseph. All the rest covers the life of Joseph. I want to say it's like 12 chapters. More than anything else in Genesis, it talks about Joseph, which is interesting. It tells us that Joseph is a significant player in the story of God's redemption. It really is. And it's no coincidence that he's also, in the Old Testament, one of the clearest types of Jesus. And you'll see this as we go through. Just, in fact, just a little preview of Joseph's life here. He was chosen. He was the chosen and favored son, endowed with honor from his father. 
and so was Jesus. He was ordained to rule over his people, and yet his people rejected him, as was Jesus. He was unjustly convicted and punished, as was Jesus. He was sold for silver, as was Jesus. And most importantly, his sufferings brought about his exaltation, just like Jesus, and his sufferings and exaltation led to the salvation of his people just like Jesus. So many parallels, it's, it's really hard to miss in the life of Joseph. And I believe this is why there's so many chapters dedicated to Joseph. And that's because, guys, the Bible is primarily about the story of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's the story of man's redemption and the one who would bring that redemption. And it's Jesus. Now, we have like two, what, two chapters on creation? And all the scientists out there are like, man, I really wish we could have got a little more on like how God created everything. But no, just a couple of chapters. Twelve chapters on the life of Joseph. Twelve. And, and that should show us how significant uh, God... God's like, look, this stuff is fun, but this is not what it's about. It's about Jesus. And so we have this, this huge section in Genesis on the life of a man named Joseph who really uh, signifies Jesus in many ways. And in fact, we remember Jesus said of the, of the Old Testament at the time, He says, look, the Scriptures, these are they which testify of Me. These are they which speak of Me. And so as we look to the Old Testament, as we look, even since we've looked all the way through Genesis, we've seen Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture. And of course, on the road to Emmaus, some of you guys remember that, as Jesus is talking to the disciples, it says from Genesis throughout the, the Scriptures, He explained how these all spoke of Jesus how they all pointed to Jesus. And it does. It's amazing. So that, I believe that's why we have so much on the life of Joseph. So verse 2 here, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So I don't know if you're an older sibling, but you have that younger sibling that always tells on you, that always tattles. That's Joseph. He's the tattletale, okay? Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we've already seen this favoritism happening with Jacob. Remember when they were approaching Esau's entourage of, of warriors? And they were concerned they'd have to go to war. Jacob put, put Joseph in the way back, so he was the safest. And then he put all the other kids like up front. Like, oh, you know, they can, we'll see what happens with these kids first. And it was obvious, right, who was the favorite. So it's, we've already seen this favoritism. It's already been uh, stewing in the hearts of these poor kids who feel underloved by, by Jacob. And it reaches a point of just ugly family dynamics in the section what we're about to read, though, in this entire section is basically painting the picture that Joseph became completely obnoxious to his brothers uh, because of this situation, because of this family dynamic. And at a point here, you kind of have to wonder, like, is Joseph doing this on purpose? Does he realize how arrogant he'll come across in this next section? Or is he, like, totally naive to it? I don't know for sure. You, you kind of have to wonder, like, maybe he just did not have very good social sense, but you just, or maybe he just was that full of himself, you know. But nevertheless, it's, it's kind of interesting, this next section. And we're told, if you look at verse 3, that he had a coat of many colors. 
And you, 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 those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know, you get out your crayons and draw the rainbow coat of Joseph. Well, this word, coat of many colors, is actually an interesting term. Uh, they're not certain as to what it means. That's just a guess. Others, mean it might, others think it might mean long sleeves. Like this, this coat was a coat of prominence. And that, that's really what the main point is. It was a coat that signified uh, prominence and honor. And in fact, if it was a long-sleeved coat, it wouldn't have been a coat appropriate for doing a lot of manual labor. In other words, what some scholars think is, is being said here is that Joseph, or rather Jacob, gave Joseph a three-piece business suit and he gave all the other kids like janitor's outfits to work in. Perhaps never intending Joseph to actually work too hard in the fields. In fact, as we'll see, he kind of becomes the unspoken supervisor, foreman over the rest of his brothers. And remember, he's the little brother. He's got, I don't know, maybe four or five of his other brothers are older than him. And so this doesn't bode well with him. You can see why there's such animosity toward Joseph after reading this next section. Verse 5 says, Now Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, no, no, gather around. Hear this dream. Everyone's going to hear my dream. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, he likes saying behold in his dream. Behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that something? His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, it doesn't expressly say this was a dream from God, but we can deduce that it probably was, given the accuracy of its fulfillment and the fact that it's sheaths and what exalted Joseph was grain, with sheaths, right? And that they literally come and bow down before him because of a grain. I mean, so we can be pretty confident this dream was of the Lord. Um, but the brothers, to them, it just comes across as arrogant. They're not interested in how he's going to be exalted and, and what God's promising him. And honestly, guys, it would be a little bit hard for us, I think, to see your little brother bragging about how he's going to rule over you. It's like... Just put yourself in the brother's shoes. Let's try to have a little bit of sympathy for these guys at first. You know, I mean, if, if it was me up here, like, guys, I had this amazing dream the other night. Let me tell you about it. Behold, <laughs> there I was, and you guys were all there with me, and you were bowing down in submission to me. Yeah. And you were, you were there, you were wafting me with a palm frond. It was great, man. You were there throwing me grapes, you know, and, and I was just laying back as you guys worshipped me in total submission. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a cool dream? I wonder what it means. I wonder what that... What do you guys think that could mean? Maybe it, does it, maybe it means I'm better than you. I don't know. Maybe. That's what I like to picture it as. Me just being better than you. And so they're just like, this guy is full of himself. This guy's ridiculous. You could kind of... I mean, you could kind of see it from their angle, right? Uh, how that could be annoying and obnoxious given, given the history already. And we tend to think, well, maybe... Maybe if he had a little more sense, he should have just kept that dream to himself. If he didn't already get the hint that his brothers were really not liking him, he didn't need to say that. And we we tend to think that. However, God uses Joseph's naive arrogance, maybe we could call it, 
And he uses the disgust of the brothers to bring about this whole plan. Like we look at this situation like, what? It's just weird and messed up and they, they're very hateful. And, and yet God uses all this to bring about his will and his plan. And what I love about that reminder is that God uses our mistakes. Like God uses our mess-ups to, to bring about amazing work. And I, I just find a lot of hope in that. Like Joseph, maybe you should have kept that to himself. Yeah, he didn't though. And his brothers hated him even more. But it led to the fulfillment of the dream. God is sovereign over these things. Verse 9, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. They're like, Here we go. All right. I got to be somewhere, Joseph. I don't have time for... He dreamed another dream. Behold, he says, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Yeah, there's 11 of you, right? Yeah. There was 11 stars in my dream. (laughs) 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now remember to, Joseph, to Jacob, he was, he was picturing Joseph as the patriarch who would carry the family line. So keep that in mind. Like Jacob had high hopes for Joseph, even though he's kind of irritated by his arrogance. Uh, he had high hopes for Joseph. And so that, that plays into the grief he will have at the end of this chapter. But this dream itself is also prophetic. In fact, it's an amazing vision. The sun, the moon, the stars, they actually become a picture of Israel as well. In fact, that verse in Revelation 12, I told you about that woman who flees to the wilderness. John sees this vision in Revelation. And we know it's representing Israel because it says in the vision that this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, wearing a crown of 12 stars. And so it becomes, coupling that with Joseph's vision here, Joseph's dream, it makes it pretty clear this is Israel. And in that vision, actually, the woman gives birth to a male child. This woman has a, has a child. And then the dragon comes along to devour the child. But the child is caught up into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. The child is caught up. Then the woman is taken to this place prepared by God to be protected for three and a half years in the middle of the tribulation period. Now, those, those of you who have been with us since the beginning of Genesis, you remember the Proto-Evangelium. The very first time God preached the gospel in the Scriptures was in Genesis 3, right? And He says that after the curse, after the sin happened, God said that the, the, uh, the seed of the woman would crush the, the serpent. The first plan of redemption, the first plan that God gave us, the insight He gave us into His plan of redemption was that this, this woman, whoever she was in the prophecy, her seed would destroy the serpent or the dragon. It's the same imagery in Revelation as it was in Genesis of the Proto-Evangelium. And of course, now we know that that woman is Israel. And that seed, that male child, is Jesus, who has defeated the enemy. He's defeated sin and death. He's crushed the work of Satan. Uh, so it's amazing as you as you look at even just this dream. We know it's prophetic. It's from the Lord, and just remember, guys. Try to keep in mind the big picture as we go through Genesis. As you read the old stories of the Old Testament, we looked at Abraham. God chose Abraham to start a new nation, 
right? He chose Joseph to preserve this new nation during a difficult time, this drought and this famine. He eventually raised up Moses to bring this nation back out of Egypt into the land again. He eventually raised up David, another type of Christ, who would lead this nation in victories in the promised land as a type of Jesus. Also, one day, Jesus of Nazareth could be born in the Roman Empire to die on a cross as it was foretold. Psalm, 20, Psalm 22, thir- the first person account of a crucifixion before crucifixion was invented so that he could die for the sins of the world. It's all about Jesus. Again, this whole story is about Jesus. And I just want you guys to understand how amazing it is for us as, as a generation to live when we live, to be able to look back and see in the Scriptures and see in history God fulfill His promises and see the plan of redemption actually enacted. It's amazing. We are so privileged, guys. So privileged. So after the second dream, the brothers are even more hateful towards Joseph, verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their, flock, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in, at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, And the man asked, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me where where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone up away, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So for whatever reason, we don't know for sure, the brothers take the herd all the way to Shechem. Shechem's like, it's like 50 miles away. It's like several days of journey on foot with flocks. And it probably because they just had to get away from Joseph and Jacob and the whole family dynamic. That, I think that's a good guess. Right? So there they are, all the way to Shechem. And now this is the same Shechem that they lived a few years prior to this, where they were influenced by the Canaanites, where Dinah had her, her tragic incident, where Simeon and Levi slaughtered the town, where Jacob had to bury the family idols before returning to God at Bethel. This is the same Shechem. So Jacob might have reason for concern. Hey, it's a long trip. Maybe something happened. Maybe Canaanites retaliated in the area. Maybe they're going back for the idols. Maybe they're trying to go back to idolatry because they're mad at me right now. He had all these, number, all these reasons to, to be worried. And so what does he do? He sends the supervisor. He sends the tattletale. Hey, Joseph, go check on your brothers for me. I'm sure they'd love to see you. He'd be wrong. He'd be wrong if that was his guess. So, so Joseph shows up. They're not in Shechem. They, they end up in Dotham, this place called Dotham, which means two wells. So presumably they went up to Dotham because there was nothing in Shechem. Maybe they went up to water in Dotham at one of the two wells. The well they ar- arrived at, we'll see, is empty, was dried up. And maybe that, maybe that added to the frustration that we'll see in this next section here. But verse 18, it says, They saw him from afar off. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they see Joseph coming, and, and they, they, are, they really don't like him at this point. This is more than just a, like a sibling rival. They, it's a, in fact, it's a step-sibling rival, and it's, it's just outright hatred at this point. 
So they see him now far away from home, away from daddy's protection, vulnerable now, and they say, let's kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say to say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Pretty cold, pretty cold-blooded. So Joseph's brothers, they become so frustrated that they think it's just better that they kill him. I mean, and it, we'll see only one of them really have the conscience to be like, that feels wrong. That, that doesn't seem, that seems like an overreaction to me. Only one of them has that inkling. And it's at this point that it becomes clear that the Lord has a lot of work to do on this family. It's a good reminder that this family, God's chosen family, is messed up. And it's another reminder, therefore, that God uses messed up people. Like you and like me, which is good. But God also wants to do a work in you and in me and in these guys. And He's going to use this tragic event to, do, to accomplish the work that needs to happen. And in fact, in, in the events that we're going to see take place, strangely enough, it will lead to the humility that Joseph needs to be a true leader. It will lead to the um, conviction that his brothers need to, to come to repentance and humble themselves as well. This whole mess will lead to them finally having a right standing and a right heart. God is using this. Again, thank God that he uses our mistakes. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.